Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Morgan Phillips to the podcast. Morgan is responsible for the day-to-day running of the Glacier Trust Charity with a specific focus on project development, partnerships, strategy and fundraising. Morgan holds a BSc in Geography, an MSc in Environmental Science, Policy and Planning and a PhD in Environmental Education. He worked at Keep Britain Tidy for five years, spending two years as team leader in community engagement and three years as education manager. Previously, Morgan ran a small intercultural understanding charity, Global Footsteps, and lectured on the politics of climate change at Brunel University. Thank you very much, Morgan, for joining me today on the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great. Great. Now, I know you, uh, you uh, wear various hats and you've been involved in various different um, roles in, in environmental education and so forth, and uh, your main focus now is the Glacier Trust. Can you Tell us a little bit about you know what the, the what, what what the trust does and it's it, the background the the problem it, it's it, the problems it's dealing with. Yeah, sure. Um, so the Glacier Trust is a it's a small UK charity. Um, we're based in London, but we work um, exclusively on climate change adaptation projects in Nepal. Um, so it's um, yeah, it's a small operation. We have partner. NGOs um, over in Nepal who work very much on the ground with communities in usually the mid hills or sometimes higher up in the mountains um, where the impacts of climate change are starting to be felt and starting to be noticed by communities there. And so, really, the projects are about enabling um, farmers to adapt to the to the effects that climate change is starting to have on them so that's the main thrust of it um we also have a small higher education program where we partner with tribavan university which is in Kathmandu, and link them to the university of southampton here in the uk and uh we partner up um, master's students who go into the field each summer for two to three weeks to do some research into various aspects of um, sustainable development and um and and development and environmental work more generally so that's uh, that's the kind of second part of what we do but the main focus is really the the adaptation work and obviously that intersects with um sustainable development work more more broadly right right and what's the background when when was the glacier trust set up and why nepal um so it was set up in 2008 i think is when it became um an actual registered charity, um, and it was established by a man called Robin Garton, who was an arts dealer, um, I think here in London, but also um, in the southwest, and which is obviously quite unconnected. But he had um, he had a passion for um, mountaineering and, and hiking and so on, and so he used to visit um, Nepal fairly frequently. And as he um, got towards his retirement age, he he started to become more aware of the impact that climate change was having and starting to meet people who were working on it and obviously meeting families and people affected already. Um, his particular interest was really in the, in the higher mountains and the, the, the glacier retreats and the effect of um, climate was having on or is having still on the, the periglacial environment. So that's the kind of environment just, just below the glacier level or kind of around it so it's the um it's the kind of the the gradual thawing of the permafrost and the impact that can have on landslides and, and so on and but basically he started to, to sort of put all of all the pieces together and saw what was happening and saw that there was a real need to to help people to adapt to what was going on and so he decided to retire a little bit early um and started a geography degree. I think he was around sixty. I think when he when he started it, which was at the, at Southampton University, and um, yeah, ended up setting up the trust to to start to try to raise funds here in the UK and and use those funds to really just to 
enable the partner NGOs that we still have that he, he initially established to, to start to um, to do to do the work they wanted to do. Um, so it was very much um, led by the kind of what he was being what he was learning when he was in Nepal, and it was very much trying to avoid um, imposing solutions from afar. It was really tell us what you want to do. I'll go away and raise some money for it, and then um, you know come and come and sort of grab the stories as as they start to emerge to help us to continue to raise funds. So and that's very much how it's how it's carried on really. Right, right. Now you've been involved since 2016, if I'm right. What's your background and how did you get started in this area? Um, so yeah, I've, it's, I think it's exactly three years actually. It was around about this time in 2016 that I joined. And previous to that, I was working on environmental education. So I was the head of Eco Schools England at Keep Britain Tidy, um, which was an interesting and enjoyable role. My background really is has mostly been in environmental education and that's what I studied at university. Um, but I felt a need with the kind of around, around that time, around 2016, I was starting to get a little bit more, uh, I guess the urgency of the climate crisis was really starting to dawn on me more than it had done before. Um, and I just felt I wanted to be closer to helping people who were suffering from it rather than, um, battling with the kind of quite ineffectual um, education system that we have here in the UK to actually do a longer term process on it. But it's not to, not to devalue environmental education. I'm still very much involved in it with other projects, but um, I really wanted to get closer to, to kind of seeing direct impact of my work, really. Yes. Now, Nepal, um, the Himalayas, um, can you give us a little bit of a snapshot? Um, I, I know there's uh, we're, yeah. we're getting more insights um, uh, over time. I mean, it seems that it seems that the kind of predictions of the models of you know CO two associated with you know global warming um, are, are are accurate you know, way back in time, but the actual mm. impacts um, seem to be coming much faster than most models predicted. So there's two different things going on. But I'm just wondering in terms of you just maybe set the scene a little bit, talk about, you know, um, what's happening, why the Himalayas matter so much and and what's happening, I mean, at least from your perspective in the Glacier Trust. Yeah, I think on on your point about things starting to happen quicker, it's, um, I think it's a very important one to to kind of think about, especially as there's the COP25 going on at the moment. And I think with the IPCC reports, they've always been very... um, very cautious about the predictions they've made and they kind of though they don't they they will only put things in there which they have a high degree of certainty are going to happen and so the stuff which was kind of 60 percent chance of happening or 70 percent chance happening just wasn't in there and so i think we got a bit of a false picture of how severe the the issues were but when you when those you know 70 percent chances are high chance and, and that those things which were being predicted are starting to happen which is why i think we're we shouldn't really be surprised by how how quick um, the impacts are hitting, and so in in Nepal, I think, and across the Himalayas and the Hindu Kush area, I mean, it's known as the third pole, as I'm sure you're aware, and that's because it's the the third biggest um, volume of ice is is in the Himalayas um, after the North and South Pole, and and it feeds um, ten of the world's major rivers and. Um, I think it's around 1.6 billion people are reliant on water which flows down from the Himalayas. And so as we see the glaciers retreat, um, this is having an effect then on on the amount of water and the speed of water which, which is flowing. And the big worry is is that if the glaciers disappear completely, um, which some kind of already have, um, <coughs> then, yeah, a lot of people are going to be... Um, suffering quite severe water shortages and so at the kind of macro level that's that's the impact that it's having and then when you zoom in a bit and kind of i always like to talk about this from the let's start at the top of the mountain and work our way down um when you move into the kind of areas where we're working um which is around kind of three thousand meters altitude down to sort of 1500 meters um these communities are they're living on very steep slopes and there's a lot of terracing and 
um, the people mostly move around on foot. Um, there's some there's some tracks and roads, but they're um, it's pretty inaccessible. So so they're very remote areas, and climate change is having an impact there. I think the biggest way it's having an impact is that the the monsoon season is becoming more erratic every year. And so people are finding it harder to plan um, when they're going to plant their crops. So the kind of monsoon will, will sort of start, and but it will end up being a false start, and then it'll be, it'll be dry again for two to three weeks. And so all the seeds they put in haven't, haven't been able to germinate, and then they need to do it again. So And then they'll get kind of a deluge of rain, which will be too heavy and causes lots of um, runoff and causes um, sort of mini landslides and which can block roads and paths and in some cases they can they can crush people um, so those kind of the pattern of the monsoon is rather than being kind of steady predictable rain throughout the summer months it's becoming a kind of pattern of deluge and then drought and deluge and then drought and so it causes um, flooding and extreme rain and then long periods of no rain at all and so um, so the water rather than kind of filtering slowly into, into the soil and recharging the water table when it, when it flows down, when it rains very hard, then it runs off quickly and runs off into the rivers and disappears away. And so part of the challenge is to, is to adapt to that changing rainfall pattern and work out ways to try and keep, keep the rain. So I think that's the major impact it has, but there's, there's other impacts as well in that, um, farmers are finding that insect pests are coming kind of higher up the mountain than they used to come and they will um, kind of land on crops and burrow into them and kill them from the inside and um, so farmers are having to deal with insects which they've not had to deal with before um, just because of just because of the extra heat and uh, there's I mean I won't go straight into all the adaptation chat yet but um but yeah, those those are the yes, the yes. problems which which we really see the most. Yeah, I'd like to talk about adaptation in a moment. That's uh, quite uh, staggering, uh, quite shocking, really, and worrying. Um, uh, what you're talking about there, um, and and um, the, the the pace of glacier melting is seems to be accelerating dramatically. Uh, how, how how good data do we have on that? I mean, I've seen figures that you know it's the melting has doubled. Um, there's been a lot of uh, news, uh, a lot of I guess focus in the recently in in certain media, I suppose about about tipping points and so forth. I don't know whether mm -hmm. that's something you 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 look at at all or, or aware of or have any thoughts about. You know what what does that mean if it's you know if if, if the glaciers have uh, the pace has, has doubled? Is you know how dramatic is that? Yeah, I mean obviously it's 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 pretty dramatic. Um, I've not ever been up as high as any of the the, the glaciers in in Nepal just because of the uh, the cost associated with traveling up there and the time it takes to get there it's, it's um it's not we can't I mean I'd love to go and see it um but it's not really justifiable um but I've spoken with several glaciologists over there and um, people at Isimod who who will, who wrote the high mountain assessment report which came out I think about a year ago now which is a really detailed picture of of what's going on in the Himalayan Kush. Um, and the there's one actually in in Solakumbu, which is out in East Nepal, um, where one of our projects, um, where we work, where we've been working since the since the charity started. Um, it's it was actually called Lake Four Six Four for quite a long time because nobody had ever really been there, and it was it's a glacial lake um, which has formed as as the glacier on the edge of um, Mount Chamlang has been retreating, and the people who have been there and there's not many people who've been there but the the scientists who've looked at it they they're very worried that it's um poses a large um, glacial lake outburst flood risk a glof threat um because the the moraine which is the the kind of rock which glaciers has pushed forward um as the glacier formed so it's kind of rock and mud um when the glacier retreats, that moraine stays there and then the water builds up behind it. But that moraine is kind of full of ice and rock and they're, they're usually quite unstable structures, um, especially as 
um, as temperatures rise and it kind of starts to melt that the ice which is within it and and as the water builds up behind while, while the glacier retreats and so they're very worried that that that's and it's it's one of many across the himalayas which which is at danger of bursting and so as an immediate threat to the people living in the valleys below it and the and the farmland and so on is is that those that moraine could burst and and flood the valley below um but it's also the the worry with it is that while you have a moraine and you have a glacial lake and it's and it's fairly stable then the water kind of seeps out of it gradually it kind of seeps through through the moraine and that creates a kind of trickle effect of water coming down into the valleys below which is obviously quite stable and therefore um quite good for predicting how much water is is going to be available but if that disappears then then that kind of that gentle flow then doesn't exist so once the once they've kind of got over the the shock of the of the glacial lake outburst flood after things settle down after a year or two then they're not going to have that same steady flow of water and that's that's an issue which is hitting right across the himalayas and nepal doesn't really have the finances of the funding at all to be able to shore up those moraines and kind of turn them into dams or to build them up there's one lake called lake imja which is quite near to um, everest and if that flooded it would flood the villages below which are all part of the everest um trekking route it's obviously it's quite a um economically important um valley for for nepal and a lot of people live there um so the nepali government wanted um sent out a tender to try and get people to um to work out how to cut a kind of canal through the moraine to allow the water to flow out um at a manageable speed and they couldn't find anybody who was willing to take on the job. Nobody had ever done done what done that work at that high altitude. So they ended up having to get the Nepali army to do it. And so, and it's just one of there's yeah there's probably twenty or so across the Himalayas which are all all at risk of flooding. So that's um yeah it's kind of a ticking time bomb across the, across the mountains really yeah. Yeah. So with the scale and I guess the uh, spread of the the, 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 the the these impacts, how do you decide what kinds of projects you can work on, what you can focus on and what you've just got to, you know, uh, maybe help create awareness mm. with or just, you know, for the moment uh, not not really deal with? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think as a small charity, I think we never we've not got the ambition to kind of you know have a blanket approach and roll out the same projects um, sorry in every village across across the himalayas i'm picking up a lot of a lot of noise are you moving oh no sorry i'll i didn't i did move my arm but hopefully so it was continuous for a period of about a minute of just kind of it's just very um it's very noticeable when you're talking um so I, I don't know whether. Okay. Sorry about this. I just because it, it spoils. No, it's not. It's fine. Uh, do, do you know where you're doing anything in particular so that you, we can <laughs> eliminate it? Um, I, I don't think I was. I, I guess I was moving my arm a little bit, but not um, not massively. Is it better now? Well, how are you set up? Is that mic? I'm. I've got um my iPhone headphones on. Right. So it's just the it's the mic it's mic on the iPhone, on the on the actual um, headphones. Okay, maybe take try the taking the headphones off because they can be quite sensitive. Because I am picking up as you talk sometimes, even as you move your head. You know, um, sorry, it's just okay. I need to get that right. No, 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 of course. Um, so if I speak like this, is that's straight into the mic now? Yeah, the phone. going. Can you keep um, yeah. Although I can't hear you so well, <laughs> that's the problem. Can you hear me now? Um, I think if I talk like this, I can probably hear you fine. Is that okay for you? Uh, that's a lot better. Oh, good. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'll I'll just try that again. So a, a lot of problems and over quite a, a, a wide geographical spread. Um, how do you decide what kind of projects to focus on? Um, well, we're 
we're a small charity, so obviously we can't um, <clears throat> can't do a kind of blanket approach across across the whole of the 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 mountains there in Nepal. But um, but as a small charity, what we hope we can do is is to maybe innovate a bit more and to do um, projects at a scale of around um, it's normally around five thousand people at a time will kind of indirectly benefit and maybe two or three hundred will directly benefit from the work we do um and really we're guided by our our partner ngos so we have two really brilliant ones um eco himal nepal um who are an independent um environmental and development charity based in um Kathmandu. and they have they, they're working in three or four different locations across nepal some funded by us, some funded by other people and so in kind of collaboration with them we kind of work out what kind of is the next step in each locality that we've been working in so we might work um quite strongly in in one community for two to three years and then neighboring communities will start to kind of see the impact of the work that we've been doing in those ones and it will become obvious that right we need to we need to kind of move up valley a bit more and start start to work in the next one so it's um really we we're, we're guided by by our partner and joe's the other one's called hico def which is the himalayan community development forum um and we work in a similar way with them so i think as as a trust um effectively they they kind of apply to us for the work that they want to do and so um we'll make decisions based on our conversations with them and our kind of working out of the needs really really comes from the grass grassroots level that rather than us deciding where to work if that makes sense yeah 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 now um i'd like to talk about uh, adaptation um and um yeah why it's important uh what kind of how, how you approach this and so forth. I was wondering maybe before that you could talk, maybe identify a couple of projects that you are working on or that are key going forward for you. Yeah, okay. Um, so I think, yeah, we, when we talk about ourselves as, as a charity that enables climate change adaptation, um, just because we've tried to keep it simple as a language, but in reality, um, our work is kind of overlapping sustainable development, um, climate change mitigation and adaptation. So you think of a kind of typical Venn diagram it's those those are three circles and we're kind of trying to land somewhere in the middle of of all that but the um yeah the reality of it is is that um as as climate as the climate crisis kind of deepens then more and more people are needing to adapt to its effects and they're going to start doing it anyway and um but they'll so we need to be working with people um, this is true right across the world on um, making sure that that adaptation is being done in a mindful way um it's it's definitely possible to to adapt to climate change but cause more climate change in the process so for example um using a lot of concrete to to create um a flood defense system for example is just going to generate more carbon emissions which is going to cause more more climate change and on a very kind of individual level <clears throat> i mean in London increasingly with the heat waves we get in the summer, then you know people will buy kind of an electric desk fan as a kind of um, short term adaptation to the to the heat they're experiencing, but again that uses electricity and causes more climate change so there's a real need for that kind of education around um, the importance of adapting in in mindful ways and actually talking about adaptation is important so in terms of the actual project work we do um it's largely based around um agroforestry projects so we um in solicumbu actually in a village called dosa um one of robin who set the charities up one of his one of the things which he and um eco himal kind of came up with as a concept was to create an agroforestry resource center which is a physical building um in the village of dosa which they which was donated by the community and um, well the land was donated by the community and then and then the community donated their hours to, to actually build it and um they wanted to create a center where they can where they could um demonstrate to other farmers ways in which different new crops could be grown which are more resilient to climate so they don't need as much 
water or they are being grown in ways which um, mean that insect pests are less likely to cause trouble. So this is thinking about which plants you should plant next to other ones because one plant will scare off insects um, to save the other one. And so, yeah, a lot of it's around agroforestry and we, um, and that has led to, um, in DOSA especially, but now in some other areas that we're working, um, a big kind of investment in, in coffee production. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, one of the effects of climate change is that coffee can grow a bit higher up the slopes than it previously could. Um, and so we've been enabling farmers to learn how to grow coffee using um, what's called the layer farming method, which is which is intercropping. Um, and so you don't just grow coffee as a kind of monoculture on the side of a hill. You grow it with root vegetables below it. Um, and the coffee grows and then you grow kind of banana trees or other fruit trees above it which which shade the coffee tree and so this is how this is one of the adaptations is to is to have the the shade crop because the coffee then isn't exposed to as much direct sunlight so the leaves stay healthier but also probably more importantly it means that the the kind of bark of the tree isn't as warm which means that the kind of the insects which which fly in they don't they don't end up being as as attracted to it and i've seen coffee trees which haven't had any shade on them and insects have come in landed on them and burrowed inside inside the tree and then buried their way up the trunk and up through the branches and and kind of eaten the tree from the inside and killed it which is a big problem and so a lot of the work is quite simple things really around um explaining the you know why that's happening and how just having a shade crop is a way to way to adapt to that and to prevent that from happening and the coffee then is obviously it's a it's a good kind of high value crop um part of what we need to do because there's we see coffee growing in various different places across nepal and some of it has just kind of gone wild um and nobody's really picking it because they don't really know how to um process it to get it to the what's called the parchment stage which is kind of um pre-roasting um and so it's just been left and so we we supply training on how to not just grow coffee but how to pick it and how to um take the fruity layer off and to how to dry it to the right um moisture content and then how, how to then transport it to um a kind of collection center and to organize as a cooperative and so, so as well as the training, it's also about helping farmers to to get that crop um, to market as well. So um, those, are, so it's not, so it's part. This is where the intersection with kind of development work goes on. So it helps the community to develop economically as well. And as you know, as as an adaptation kind of strategy, it's not just about how to grow crops which are more resilient. It's also about really just if people have more money, um, then quite simply, it's it's easier for them to to find ways to adapt to what's happening, so they can they can invest that extra money that they they're bringing in into things like polytunnels to to grow vegetables or um, sort of basic sprinklers and things like that to help with watering crops or to build or to dig out kind of water collection ponds, um, sort of water harvesting ponds, so that when they do get those deluges of rain. It doesn't all just run off. It can go into a into a pond, and then they can use that water later in the year to irrigate crops. So, um, so the economic development part of it is really important to actually um, the adaptation strategy more broadly. Right, that, that's very interesting because I've done some work. I, I don't know whether you're familiar with Project Drawdown. Um, yeah, and um, they have quite a few. Uh, well, there are a hundred solutions, but. Many are uh, from the food side of things and uh, yeah. some fascinating uh, work and silver pasture, I guess, and tree intercropping and um, I guess the whole kind of what you might call conservation agriculture. I guess this kind of work you're doing fits into somewhere in this kind of range of activity. Yeah, definitely. And it has kind of links with kind of permaculture as well. And yeah. um, it's it's really trying and this is kind of what we mean as well by the mindful adaptation in that um 
in searching for new crops to grow, which which can cope with the with the climate effects. It's it's also doing that while being mindful of the local ecology as well. So farmers are very understanding of the dangers of using chemical pesticides and fertilizers. So they're also kind of taught how to create organic pesticides. They're doing all sorts of things like um, collecting urine and and using like human urine to make make fertilizer. Um, and they're really yeah really understanding of the need to kind of look after the the ecology as well so it's a real aim of kind of living harmoniously and synergistically i guess with the environment and how are farmers responding to what extent have ideas like this been traditional or maybe lost um over time or are these newer ideas and to what extent are they are they being uh, transferred or people, you know, picking up and, and, and I mean, I guess, uh, underlying that, I suppose, this question of productivity, are they, are, are they significantly better that would, you know, and, uh, drive people mm. to say we should be doing this kind of thing? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm always quite amazed by it. I think a lot of it is quite new to people um, because the, the kind of traditional... Um, agriculture there is very sort of basic rice and maize and millet and, and things like that and maybe some some farmers have small kitchen gardens um just to have their own fruit and vegetables um but talk yeah things like coffee and other kind of high value crops i mean they're also growing almonds and we're experimenting with hazelnuts at the moment as well um and then things like avocados and at the agroforestry resource center they're also um, learning how to um, graft um, different species of um, or subspecies of, of fruit trees onto each other, so they use kind of the the native, like the roots of the native kind of apple tree. Then they introduce a more higher yielding apple tree, and they graft it onto onto that tree. And so there's all that sort of stuff is going on as well, so they can get higher yielding fruits. And um, yeah, I was really amazed actually. A couple of times, um, well, a couple of years ago when I visited, I met um, a lady there and she must have been in her 50s or 60s and she was growing tomatoes for the first time ever in her life and she'd always lived in the mountains and I found it quite amazing that she'd never done it before because she'd been working, you know, she'd been living in, in that on that land all that time but never, never even grown something because as kind of, I guess homogenous as a, as a tomato, which was, which I was really surprised by. But um, but that's true. I think with lots lots of the crops they're growing, and it's it's having. I mean, some of the stories that I've been picking up on is that obviously Nepal has a quite um, severe kind of out migration problem. Um, so people leaving the mountains to go to the cities, and even going abroad as well to. Middle East and to Malaysia and Philippines and and this kind of standard out migration story. So a lot of mostly young men are leaving the country and and trying to make a living elsewhere and send money back and 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 not always obviously being treated very well in in doing that. Um, but they're as a result of things like the Agroforestry Resource Centre being set up, they're actually seeing oh, there's an opportunity now for me to get the support I need just to start to farm in new ways and to maybe I could become a coffee farmer. And I've met quite a number of young men sort of in their twenties and thirties who have, who have moved back from, from abroad to actually take on the family farm now that they can, you know, they've got that kind of initial, I guess, startup fund to kind of get a, get a polytunnel or to get a sprinkler to actually start farming, which is really encouraging. But the, the general trend is still that, um, young men and women are leaving the mountains driven partly by the climate change issue, but also just by global economics. Um, and so that leaves behind the older generation. And so crops like all the fruits and vegetables, which are especially the vegetables and rice and millet and so on, which are very labor intensive, are harder and harder for those older generations. So if we can bring in these high value crops like coffee, which they need sort of short bursts of intense kind of farming and, and picking, and it's it's easier on them physically, and so it's it's more possible for them to continue to farm. So that's another kind, that's another kind of yeah. adaptation to yeah. the migrationary patterns as well. Yeah. So when, as far as the adaptation is concerned, to what extent 
do you find uh, farmers and local people aware of the, the the problem, the scale of the potential problem? To you know, and to what extent you know are they? Uh, they is it apparent what's on the on the cards, as it were, um, when you're mm-hmm. when you're talking about adaptation and so forth? How do those conversations go generally? Are they they're pretty aware of, of what's at stake? Um, some are and some aren't. I think um, it's increasingly they are, and we always build into any of the programs that um, we're doing in those in those communities that there is um, there are kind of climate change awareness workshops and things that we'll do to help to try and a get people to understand you know what what you know the changes they're seeing sort of in the monsoon rain or or noticing that it doesn't snow at a certain height anymore only snows further up so the kind of things which they've been noticing over time and to actually help them to understand that it's it is climate change that's or it's this thing called climate change which is which is causing these these things which you're observing because some people aren't aware of it yet as a concept especially younger people obviously younger children for sure um so there's definitely a need to to make to join those dots together but i think um we're also i'm also kind of aware that um climate change is something which um people in nepal and i think in other countries as well are aware that it's something that western countries care about and so there is sometimes an element of you know relating everything to climate change because they see that there's money when you talk about it in climate change terms, there's definitely some of that happens as well. Um, but yeah, yeah. it's, um, but you know, these, these challenges are, are quite common really that, um, so people will try and link everything to climate change sometimes because they, because they link climate change to, to bringing in funds. So we always uh, want to try and keep it, you know, much, you yeah. know, that we also believe in development as being very important as well. So it's, um, it's all, they all intersect with each other so yeah very interesting very interesting now you're a trust um can you talk about what that means in terms of how you're funded i know you yeah. sell copy and i've just got some here wonderful copy uh, yeah thanks do you uh have you did you think about social and being a social enterprise or have you got flexibility within the model that you operate and i guess underlying that is this question of, you know how 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 funding has been for you yeah um so i think i mean our income is around about a hundred thousand pounds a year um which is obviously we makes us quite small um some of that is is core funding which i work three days a week so some some of that is is my salary and travel costs and stuff but i think around about 70 percent of our income goes um directly to the projects in nepal which is quite a good ratio that we're trying to keep going um we have um three funders who who fund our core funding which means that um every other donation or every other bit of money that comes in is kind of 100% gets gets spent in the pool on the project work and it comes from a mixture of individuals giving on a kind of monthly basis or an annual basis um we have people you know encouraging <laughs> normally friends and family to go and do sponsored bike rides and walks and stuff for us and so that that brings in a bit as well. Um, we get some funding from a trust called the Mar Manning Trust, who um, are almost 100% funding a project in an area called Cavre, where we're establishing a new agroforestry resource centre, again with Eco Himal. Um, so there's some grant funding there as well. Um, and then, yeah, the income from the coffee is quite small, but um, we kind of bring back coffee, which is grown in Solokumbu and roasted in Kathmandu. And we really have we put we try and put an emphasis on on the importance of it being roasted in Nepal, so that more of the value is added to the to the coffee in Nepal, so that more of the money stays in Nepal, rather than most coffee tends to be shipped over as as kind of green bean and then roasted in fancy roasteries, which make a lot more money out of it. And so the so the you know the country of origin kind of loses out. Then so we're very much kind of trying to stick to that rule of roasting it in country um but yeah the income on that is for us is is quite small especially for the amount of work i have to do to uh, package it all up and post it all off but um but it's worth doing because i think it really gets the story out there of what we're doing and 
um, people have been buying sort of 150 gram bags of coffee from us uh, over the last few weeks to, to give to people as Christmas presents. And we have a little um, story about where the coffee comes from and, and so on. So it's really great for awareness raising. But the we have been looking and actually, yeah, I mean, I'm no, I've never worked in social entrepreneurship, but um, we've been sketching out kind of how much coffee would we need to uh, bring in and sell to be able to, you know, maybe fund a salary off off um, selling coffee in the UK, um, because the potential for growing it in Nepal is huge. There's only probably about five percent of the available, or five percent of the land which could be growing coffee is growing coffee, so that it could expand hugely. And there's a lot of um, enthusiasm for it, and it does work as an adaptation strategy and as a development strategy as well. So we have yeah looked at, at whether we could kind of scale up the whole coffee enterprise side of what we're doing and maybe have a separate social enterprise alongside the charity um to yeah to grow the coffee and then hopefully train people in Nepal to roast it and have it roasted there maybe have it packaged there and then um sell some of it obviously in the country um because it's becoming more and more popular as a drink there anyway um but then yeah see if we can um sell it um as a way to raise funds for the charity as well. So yeah, I'm definitely interested in exploring that more. If, uh, if you know anybody who's interested in, in coffee and social entrepreneurship around it, that'll be amazing yeah. to know. Well, maybe I'll uh, talk about that. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Interesting as you say that it it, it um, it's a it's a good adaptation strategy as well, and that underlying you know so that it, as you say, there's the Ben diagrams that <laughs> it, it fits in on yeah. on various different uh, levels, as you say. Because I guess this question of being a small uh, you know organized a small trust, this question of growth um, is something yeah. that you probably see so many opportunities for you know further development of work and you know expansion of projects or new projects and so forth. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, when you've got a, a, a limited number of funding options, um, and I know that the whole funding, searching for funding, getting funding in itself mm-hmm. is, a, is, a, is a big, uh, very time-consuming kind of uh, operation. Um, I mean, presumably, I mean, you've been involved for three years. Has the scale of the organization changed over that time, or are you pretty much operating at pretty much the same scale? And I guess that's tying into really wondering what what kind of projects you yeah. move into in the future. What's your aspiration? Yeah. Um, well, thankfully, yeah, it has it has grown a little bit. We've um, I think we were we were on around um, fifty or sixty thousand a year when I when I started. So I managed to get it up to a hundred thousand. But so it's scaled up a bit, and now we're working in um, four different parts of nepal whereas it was only just in two when i when i started so we've got um right right um so yeah there's the expansion there i mean i think the the challenge we have and the challenge for charities of our size is you know we have applied before for funds which are kind of 50 or sixty thousand pound projects to to kind of scale up the kind of agroforestry model um because the demand is there actually i should have said earlier there's in terms of the the spread of it there's we've had to set up a number of kind of satellite um, agroforestry resource centres, kind of a bit close to where people are, which don't have a physical building, but they're kind of a plant nursery and um, become a sort of mini hub. And actually, the the local politicians there have been writing us letters saying we we need one of these in every ward across the whole of Solukumbu. And so the potential to scale, and the, I mean, the enthusiasm's there. Then there's obviously quite a bit of um, sort of match funding that can come from local areas as well as coming from overseas um but yeah when we've applied for those bigger funds which would take us up into sort of the next level as a charity that's the that's the kind of tough nut to crack at the minute and we we keep um trying and trying for like um diffid and so on for funding but like you said it's um it's quite labor-intensive process to do those applications um you can you can spend two weeks on something and not get any results so you always have to balance up the risk of spending time on that as opposed to spending time on other things so yeah. but we don't have a we don't have any kind of aspirations of kind of world domination we're quite happy to um to do projects which are effective and i think at the size we're at um we can link our supporters quite personally to what's happening um 
you know, we're not that big that I can't write a personal thank you note to everybody who sends us a donation. It's um, and it's nice to be at that scale and to be able to have that kind of connection rather than being seen as a more kind of corporate charity, which I think um is a bit of an issue that some charities have that they feel that they start to become a bit faceless when they get a bit too big. And so um so it's kind of small is beautiful is one of the things principles that we that we go by for sure. So um we've just done a crowdfunder um which is still just about live. I think it's a few days left, but we hit our target a while ago, which was great, which was to put in some improved cooking stoves into Sankuvasaba, which is right out in eastern Nepal and quite near the Tibet border. And so that's been another it's the first time we've done that and that's and yeah, I was blown away by how generous people were. They were quite willing to pay kind of two hundred and seven pounds to make sure a family can have a stove and therefore end indoor air pollution for that family. So we've managed to fund um forty two um stoves through that project and that's matched up then with another 89 that have been funded by um, the international fund for agricultural development so that's been really nice to do as well and it's it's um it was a good it was an eye-opener and how in sort of new ways of fundraising and directly from individuals that's great that's great great uh, success story and I, i'm sure you'll uh find new projects to go down that route as well once you've understood the whole the crowdfunding model and you know build some skills there as well it's good to have it as another um i guess leg yeah um, uh, i should definitely give a shout out to um an organization called crowdfund 360 who i just went for some training with them and they're very small and um it was very 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 useful in terms of the how you go about doing it and the steps you need to put in place before you launch it and the kind of graphics to use and the images to use. So yeah, if anybody is is new to crowdfunding, I definitely recommend looking up Crowdfund three hundred and sixty. There, they're yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah, good to know. Good to know. Now, you, as you say, you're doing three days a week here. You've also got a background in environmental education. You talk a little bit about that. Um, seems really. Um, I guess you'll have seen this over a longer time frame, but certainly, yeah. even in the last six months there has been tremendous momentum uh, around yeah. awareness of the of environmental problems we're facing. And certainly it seems, uh, you know, where I, uh, even a year ago, you know, the, the naysayers and the deniers were still getting some kind of voice. Yeah. That's very difficult nowadays for anybody except extreme, you know. Uh, and there is polarized, a polarized issue, and particularly in the United States. But even there, it seems that uh, it's, it's now people are much more aware and much more accepting of the scale of the, of the, you know, the, the, the problems we, we face. Yeah. Um, presumably you've seen that here in the UK. Yeah, it's been um, definitely the last yeah 12 months really, isn't it? Since um, kind of Greta Thunberg came onto the scene and Extinction Rebellion and, and really, yeah, the science started to really, slap people around the face of like how serious this crisis is and i think um in environmental education terms i think the 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 gut reaction of anybody in the instinctual reaction is to is to um kind of let's just tell everybody how big the problem is and, and like let's all learn more and more about the issue and that's great to see that that's happening so lots of new people are coming into into the environmental education sphere, not just kind of in the formal sector, not, not just the kind of school stuff, but I think we're all environmental educators every time we, we're doing it now, the people listening to this will be learning about environmental issues. So it happens in multiple different ways. Um, but the thing which I'm working on at the moment with um, Global Action Plan, um, who are kind of medium-sized charity, environmental charity based in London, um, and they're doing some really interesting stuff on linking, making the links between um, values and behaviours. And so this is something which I've been interested in for a long time and have been involved with another organisation called Common Cause Foundation around this. I don't know if you've heard of those guys before. Right. No, I haven't. No. So, um, so this is looking at um, the, one of the, I guess one of the first things you learn when you start studying environmental education is that there's, there can be a gap between what we know about the environment and then our actual behavior. 
and there's lots of reasons for that gap um but a lot of it is based in the fact that we have many many different influences in our behavior and our environmental concern is kind of only one of those influences so even if we're getting lots and lots of more information about the environment we're still getting bombarded with say advertising and the commitments we have for our jobs and family commitments and so on and they all shape our behavior as well and so what um global action plan have been doing is is really looking at consumerism and well-being quite closely and helping um young people to really critique um the kind of messages which come from um the advertising industry but also just culture generally about the things which um you need to buy or need to do to be a successful human being and so on and sort of exposing some of the some of the myths around that and some of um how you know status isn't as important as we think it is and social recognition isn't as important as we think it is and so on and helping people to, to let go of those kind of consumerist values because they know that it's all the research shows that when we let go of those those sorts of values then we tend to have better mental health anyway because we don't have some as we're less inclined to be kind of narcissistic or um have kind of status anxiety um but also by letting go of those consumerist values we also end up consuming less and that is obviously going to have a positive impact on our environmental impact uh, as well so it's been really interesting so we're working a lot on that at the moment and trying to help people to see the importance of when we're doing environmental education and teaching about the environment that we're not kind of appealing to those same sorts of values around status and financial wealth and so on as ways to motivate behavior and actually we're tapping more into what's called our kind of intrinsic values or our compassionate values and helping people to um to connect in a, on a deeper level with the things which are really important to them like true friendship and social justice and protecting the environment and wisdom and creativity and so on and trying to position environmental education in that way because it reinforces those values which which are both better for mental health anyway but also underpin sort of longer term commitment to environmental issues so it's been um yeah i feel really um privileged actually to be able to to be able to work on that which i just have been in the last couple of months sounds great um you've got a very full plate there um morgan as as many do working in this area um but I'd just like to thank you so much for uh, joining me today and talking about the great work you're doing at the Glacier Trust. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, well, yeah, there's a, um, actually, I didn't mention we have a short 20-minute um, documentary called Coffee Climate Community, which you can find on our website, which um, tells the story probably in, in a less rumbling way than I have been. Um, but yeah, I'd recommend having a look at that if anybody wants to find out more about it. And yeah, and thanks, thanks again for buying the coffee. I hope you enjoy it as well. <laughs> thanks, Morgan. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.